Well, while we rightly focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ around this time of year, oftentimes we neglect that Jesus rose not just from the grave, but he also arose into heaven. This part of Jesus' life and ministry is actually one of the most meaningful and and I'll even say practical as far as our daily lives are concerned. I'm not suggesting that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not practical for us because uh, they pertain to the very essence of our being, um, the salvation of our souls, the cleansing of our sins. But uh, let me say it this way. None of us would be here if it were not for Jesus' ascension. If Jesus had lived, died, risen again, and then as we'll see, had brought the kingdom of God at that time, as the disciples were asking in the book of Acts, none of us would be here to be a part of the kingdom of God. So that is very real, that is very practical, but it's also very real and practical in terms of what are we here for? What is my purpose in life? Why does God have me in this job or in this marriage or in this family? Where does God want me to be? What does he want me to do? And so we're going to consider these questions this morning. What does the ascension mean? What is its purpose? Why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Now we're going to use the book of Acts, the first 11 verses as kind of our outline, and we could say a lot about the ascension. I debated whether to make this another series, but we'll, we'll finish it out today. And really, I'm just going to give you two reasons today. There's many reasons. I'm going, going to give you two reasons from the book of Acts, two reasons why Jesus had to ascend. And the first one is because of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. Until the, uh, we'll just start in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I, that is Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's referring to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke, again, the author of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke, he bridges the end of his gospel to the beginning of the second narrative with verses 1 and 2. Now, we often call this, it's chaptered in my Bible this way, the Acts of the Apostles. But a better title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit really is the main character of all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Even in this introduction, we see the key role that the Holy Spirit plays in the post-ascension life of the Christian. Verse 2 and 3 refers to this time between the resurrection and the ascension, 40 days, during which Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave instructions and commands to the apostles. Now, the role of the Holy Spirit in general throughout the whole Bible is to inspire and empower the followers of God to speak his word and do his will. 
So you have Samson, let's say, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he takes down that uh, temple of the Philistines. You have the prophets inspired by the Holy Spirit. You have Saul and David and other kings filled with the Holy Spirit. And it would come upon them in the Old Testament, empower them, but it was really just for special people at special times, prophets and kings, judges, and sometimes just even for a moment, the Holy Spirit would come and fill. Now, what is unique about the New Testament and beginning with Jesus is that the Holy Spirit dwells within a person and is a permanent party to their lives, you could say. Now, Jesus, he's fully God, right? And in his deity, he is in this mystic Trinitarian relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Father, Son, Holy Spirit there in, there in, in some mysterious, in, in the sense that we can't fully understand, communion with each other, the Trinity. But Jesus, in his humanity, being fully man, fully like us in our humanity, throughout his entire earthly ministry, including at this time, after the resurrection, he also had to be inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak and do the will of God. So he lived his life fully uh, in communion as a man with the Holy Spirit the way that Christians ought to. And we'll elaborate on that in a second. Now, that dependence of Jesus Christ on the Holy Spirit is a model for us as Christians. So, you know, if even Jesus had to depend upon the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry and to do the work and will of God, then certainly we need to also. And so one of the promises of the ascension is that this Holy Spirit would come and dwell among us. This is what he kept saying over and over again on the night that he was betrayed. John chapter 14. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in John. But turn to John chapter 14. Should just be a few pages to the left in your Bible from Acts. John chapter 14. John chapter 14 through 17, or really 13 through 17, we're in the upper room. We're spending that time with Jesus and his disciples where they're sharing the Passover meal. Um, it's, John focuses on this time with a large portion of his gospel, the, the dialogue and the conversations, and this is one of them. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So they have seen the Holy Spirit work in Jesus' life. And now Jesus is saying that there's going to be a moment where they will likewise receive, like Jesus has the Holy Spirit, they will have the Holy Spirit. And he calls him a helper and a spirit of truth. A helper, you can also say an a enabler, encourager, empowerer. All those things are involved in that word. It's a very broad word. And a spirit of truth tells you his nature, that he is always one that bears witness to the truth. And that's why, in a way, the, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring us the Bible, the Word of God, because he is the spirit of truth. Go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. 
speaking of the same helper and Holy Spirit, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So now Jesus is implying he's going to be somewhere where the disciples are not, and when he was there, and it's with the Father, he is going to send the Holy Spirit. So uh, some theologians say it, say it like this, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Because in John 14, the Father will send the Spirit. John chapter 15, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth. But notice here, the task is starting to be illuminated. What is the, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Why is this something that needs to be a part of our lives? And John 15, Jesus elaborates, that they are going to be witnesses, that the Holy Spirit is a witness, is the testifier, the truth speaker, speaking truths about Jesus, and he dwells in you so that you can be a witness, a testifier, a truth speaker. Now, John chapter 16, verse 5 through 11, just below. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, Jesus here said something absolutely mind-blowing. If you were a disciple back then, hey, if you're a disciple right now, under what circumstances would you ever say, you know, I'd rather have something other than Jesus? I think it would be to my advantage if Jesus were not here. And really, he does mean in that physically present way, just imagine saying that. It's, doesn't that sound offensive on the, on the face of it? <laughs> you know, I, Jesus, I think actually it is better that you're going. I mean, no one wants to hear that. That doesn't sound uh, very inviting. That doesn't sound like you want <laughs> the person to be around. In fact, that seems to be the major concerns that the disciples are having at this moment, where Jesus keeps saying he's going to leave, and the disciples don't like that idea. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if this is... A great plan. I'm uncomfortable with this. But Jesus himself is saying, it is to your advantage. It's to your benefit that I go away. Why? Because you will receive the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity will dwell within you in the same way that it had been dwelling in him. This is an incredible thought. One of the reasons that Jesus ascended into heaven is the promise of the Holy Spirit to believers. Now, there's a lot to say regarding the Holy Spirit's ministry. You could you know, do a whole study, of course, on the Holy Spirit. And I've been kind of reducing it to words like inspire, enable, empower. Um, but it's, I want to just make two points, okay, about the Holy Spirit's ministry, or else we're going to launch a whole other sermon series uh, the first is, at least in two ways, it's better for Jesus to leave, according to these passages, right? First one is, 
while having Jesus physically present is amazing and wonderful, fantastic. Who wouldn't want Jesus to be here this morning with us? For the Holy Spirit itself to dwell within us, Jesus thinks is better than his own physical presence among us. For the third person of the Trinity to indwell us so that we can have this personal experience of God, even doing the things of God is far beyond, far greater than just witnessing the works of God done by someone else. And, you know, in other words, for Jesus to be physically present there and the disciples as they had done through all the gospels to watch Jesus do a bunch of really amazing, incredible things, Jesus says, but you know what would be better? is if you did them. <laughs> That's better for you. It's to your advantage for you that you have the same Holy Spirit-empowered life as I did. So, that is the first reason it's better for us, at least, for Jesus to leave, is that we have uh, the personal experience of God within us rather than just watching Jesus do all of those godly things without or outside of us, let's say. Second reason the Holy Spirit is more advantageous than Jesus being here is in the sense that anyone who believes can have an experience of God. When you think about it, Jesus in his earthly ministry, he was located in one geographical spot. It's one of the mysteries of uh, Jesus' incarnation in a sense because you know part of the definition of God is that he's omnipresent, meaning he's, there's no, no place where God is not there, let's say. So, well, you have a little bit of a, you know, paradox in that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is in a body in a very specific place and time. And so uh, we won't get into all the logistics of that, but just understand that we're people in, like, Africa or, or what we, you know, what we call Africa now, I guess, or Australia or China, you know, the folks who are there, did they have an experience of seeing Jesus and seeing his ministry? Well, well no, right? Um, they, they did not see that. They did not see, hear him teach or any of those things. He was located in one geographical location. It's one of the humbling things about Jesus. Being God incarnate, taking on a human form, is that like us, he couldn't be, you know, in two places at once, let's say. But through the Holy Spirit being given to every believer, now... God can dwell within and people can see the works of God all around the world through us. That wherever there's a believer, there is now someone who, who is Christ-like in their midst, a witness of Jesus Christ. And they can see the works of God without Jesus physically having to be there because there are a lot, a lot more, there's more than one. You know, Jesus, there's only one, but Christians, there are so many. So the second reason that it's more advantageous uh, for the world is that um, he can dwell, let's say, around the world in us, through us. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So going back to Acts chapter 1, in verse 4 and 5, Jesus says that the promise of the Father is going to come. That is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John that he is sending the Holy Spirit. So it's sort of both. You know, the Father and the Son are sending the Holy Spirit. And 
at least one reason that Jesus had to ascend is for this, the promise of the Holy Spirit among us, in us, dwelling in us. But you might still ask, as I do, okay, I mean, that's great, that sounds phenomenal, but I I mean, isn't heaven going to be a place where I'm going to have that kind of very intimate relationship with God? I mean, isn't heaven also, I mean, I suppose in, in heaven, I mean, couldn't you just give us the Holy Spirit while we're in heaven? Um, why not? Why, why don't you just, you know, set things up? Why, why can't we just get it right into the end game after your resurrection? Why has it been 2,000 years? Why did you leave here if you could have just made heaven, you know, a reality at that point? There are countless passages about the Messiah bringing this kingdom all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, how God is going to establish a kingdom, a Davidic king, you know, a descendant of David who will rule and reign from Jerusalem and rule over the whole world, even back to Abraham, where Abraham was given a, a promise that in you, you know, the whole world would be blessed. So you imagine a worldwide kingdom of God. Why bother with the Holy Spirit and all of that when Jesus could just make things right at that moment? Now, the answer to that question is actually partially answered in the promise of the Holy Spirit. You you already kind of, you get an idea of it, right? When you think of Jesus saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be a witness, and you are going to be my witnesses. What is that telling you? There's a mission. The Holy Spirit is is not just there to, you know, unite you to the Lord. That's a big part of it. But notice all the words that were going with it, like, Helper, you know, witness. It's going to be a convictor of the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. All of that implies a mission. And so the second reason Jesus had to ascend is for the sake of the gospel mission. There's a purpose and meaning to the lives of Christians. We are not just looking at uh, salvation as a get-out-of-jail-free card, and then that's it. We just sit around, twiddle our thumbs until we die or until Jesus returns or something. No, we have a goal. The Holy Spirit would not indwell us unless there was a a purpose, a mission that we were to be on about. Now, notice the way the disciples posed this question in Acts 1-6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I think it's interesting in verse Three, Jesus had spent 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God to them. And here they talk about specifically restoring the kingdom to Israel. I won't get too, too deep into this, but there's a difference. The kingdom of God is sort of the big picture of Jesus ruling over the whole world. Because after all, who made everything? God did who gets to rule and reign over it? God does. So it, it kind of makes sense that when we speak of Jesus being the king of, king of kings and Lord of lords, that the kingdom of God idea has to do with Jesus' rule and reign over all things. And the whole world is his kingdom, and one day he will rightfully and righteously rule over it. The kingdom that belongs to Israel, is, it's related, but it's slightly different in that this is a specific promise to the Israelites that they would have a descendant of King David rule over them. 
that the kingdom of Israel will be like the center of the nucleus of Jesus' rule over the world, but um, they are expecting here a, or what they're asking for here is an immediate independence of the Jewish people into uh, a recognized state with borders and lands that are governed by the promises made to Abraham and ruled by a Messiah King, Jesus Christ, who is going to regather and restore the Jewish people to the land and to a true faith in God. That's what they mean by restore the king to Israel. It's very specific. It, it, it connects to the kingdom of God because in the Old Testament, that uh, kingdom of Israel is going to be the place from which the whole world would be blessed and the Messiah would rule over the world. But they are thinking very specifically about that part of it, that timing of that moment. And remember the disciples, when they were having the Last Supper, and we're going to probably say it even uh, when we take communion in, in just a few moments, Jesus ends, after he speaks about the, the bread and the wine, he makes a promise to not drink of the fruit of the vine until he does so with them in his kingdom. So he fully expects to one day inhabit a kingdom with his disciples and share with them uh, in that special meal. So it's not wrong that they ask this. It's not wrong that they expect this. Um, Their main issue is timing. When is this going to happen? And certainly they are hoping. I don't, you know, a lot of theologians get all wrapped around, well, what did Jesus really teach them about the kingdom of God in those 40 days? Well, it's not recorded here. So guess what? I mean, all you got is conjecture. So how... You know, what, what, what kind of things did he say? And certainly he would have been biblical. So, I mean, we could go through the whole Old Testament and look at kingdom of God and kingdom passages. Again, that's a, be a whole nother study. But here, they're just talking about the when of the restoration of the king, uh, kingdom of Israel, not whether it would happen or not, or even if it's literal. I mean, at our church, we believe there will be a literal regathering, restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Some churches um, make that an allegory or a metaphor. It's not literally going to happen. We do believe literally it's going to happen because Jesus doesn't correct them in any understanding except their timing of it. Now, what's interesting is that they are nearing the Feast of Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks. It happened traditionally uh, seven sevens or seven weeks after Passover. Um, Technically, it started on the 50th day, okay? Pentecost is the Greek word for 50th. So the, the word Pentecost is just another word for this Feast of Weeks, which in Hebrew is Shavuot. <laughs> you got all that? You don't, you don't need to know all the details. It's fascinating. But um, they had just celebrated Passover, though, right? A few weeks previous, or more than a few weeks, but several weeks previous. Passover is one of those feasts where everyone, every Jewish male who was able to come was to come to Jerusalem and celebrate this. Shavuot is also another one of these feasts where every Jewish male who was able was supposed to come. There's only three of these kinds of feasts. So I think they were imagining, you remember the first time Jesus entered into Jerusalem at Passover, what we call the triumphal entry, which, you know, was very humble, actually. 
I mean, I, I think they were almost thinking, well, you know, what a great you know, time would be for you to establish the kingdom, <laughs> restore the kingdom of Israel. We could have a second triumphal entry, much more triumph this time. And then, you know, let's, 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 you know, let's, let's throw off the, um, the Roman oppression and let's establish this kingdom. Let's get this started. That, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, Lamb of, Lamb of God, Passover Lamb this time, some future time, the Lion of Judah will come to Jerusalem, but it's not at this time. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, there's, this is not the right time. <laughs> In fact, I, 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 I'm always shocked by this. So everyone's in town for this. How many people, how many people are following Jesus at this time? You don't have to question. You know exactly the number. It's in Acts 115. 120. There's 120 people gathered before Pentecost. That's not a huge, that's like, you know, our church on like an average Sunday, including the children. That's about 120. Out of the entirety of Jesus' ministry and all the things he did, there's 120 followers of Jesus Christ. That is not a huge kingdom. We're not throwing off any Roman oppressors today with 120 people. That is not the goal. That is not why the Holy Spirit is coming to restore the kingdom at this time. The Holy Spirit is coming because there is a mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's something that's going to happen or something that I'm calling you to do that requires the full empowerment and endowment of the third person of the Trinity himself in order for you to accomplish. I've been, he's been promising it, promised it all night, on the night that he was betrayed, and that Holy Spirit is coming in a few days upon you, and you are going to do this very important task. What is the task? To be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus ascended because it would not be time to restore the kingdom to Israel until the whole world had a chance to hear about God's kingdom. Or we can think of it like this. God is planning to establish a kingdom populated with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, not just 120 disciples and Old Testament saints, I guess. No, God has a much bigger plan for his kingdom. You even see Jesus referring to this in the, in, in the Gospels. If you remember, the, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is a, a tiny seed, but can grow into this great big tree and, and the, the birds can make their nests there. His point was the kingdom of God will start off small, but it will be something that will encompass the whole world. Not, not necessarily take over the whole world, but there will be people from all over the world who are going to be a part of this kingdom. And in order for this to happen, I need to go away so that you can be my witnesses. 
Judea here, referenced, is the Jewish, you know, focusing mainly on the Jewish people. It's the region, the Romans called that region Judea. It's a province of Rome, but it would be the land of the Jews. Samaria, if you remember, were the enemies of the Jews. It's kind of right smack dab in the middle of of it. If you remember Jesus' interactions with uh, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, you know that they were considered half-breeds and blasphemers, and, and Jews hated the Samaritans went out of their way to, to get around them um, and avoid them. The end of the earth, of course, is every other group of people on the face of the planet. In other words, God was calling these faithful 120 Jews to witness to the whole world, even to those people in the furthest off places and corners of the planet, including people like you and me, or as the Bible calls them, Gentiles. Gentiles just means non-Jewish people. That God's plan had always been to reach a people beyond just the Israelites. And so when I said at the beginning, it's a very practical reason why the ascension is important, why you should care. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be a part of the kingdom of God if it were not for the ascension, if it were not for Jesus rising into heaven to be with the Father and sending his spirit to missionaries and, and families and moms and dads and children to go forth and proclaim the good news of Jesus so that you heard and you believed. The ascension is something we ought to be grateful for because it included us who are far off. And you can look at those passages in Romans and Ephesians on your handout won't have time for that today. Now, the key here is what does Jesus mean if, by the mission of being a witness? I mean, you could, you could have phrased this all kinds of ways, and, and we have a lot, even in the song, um, the second song, Onward March, All Conquering Jesus. Um, we have plenty of songs, Onward Christian Soldier. There's a lot of different ways we could use as a picture, and the Bible does use all kinds of different you know, word pictures to picture our purpose as Christians. But here, he just calls it being a witness. Now, literally the word, it just means to testify or give a testimony like a witness in a trial. So at the bare minimum, these 120 folks are going to be asked to tell about who Jesus is and what he had done for sinners by dying on the cross and rising again. But there's a little bit more to that word, especially as you get into uh, the New Testament. <clears throat> Firstly, the idea of being a witness meant that they were to teach people, not just teach people about Jesus, but encourage them also to follow Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, you're familiar with these verses. It's often called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, starting verse 16. Now, the 11 di disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, amazing verses, but essentially this is the same mission. Jesus is not giving two separate missions. Hey, there's the, you know, be a witness mission, and 
hey, here's the make disciples mission. No, they're the one and the same mission. The implication of being a witness is that when you tell people about Jesus, they're going to want to follow Jesus too. And when they want to follow Jesus, what you need to do is baptize them and teach them. That's what our mission is as a church. That's why churches exist. Because there is this mission that God has given for the kingdom of God to make the gospel known and as people respond to the gospel call to make them a part of the mission as well of making disciples. So part of being a witness is disciple making. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that because it is not just by testifying or teaching that we make these disciples. It is not just through our talents and our skills. Oh, you know, this pastor is such a great teacher. Or, oh, this church has so many ministries. Or, oh, that, you know, fellowship is, you know, it seems to be uh, growing so much. I, I mean, there are lots of ways to get bigger churches that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of, uh, of, of pastors who are in pulpits who are not Christians and yet have gigantic churches. Why do we need the Holy Spirit to do these things and truly to depend on him? Because what we are to do as Christians is invest our whole life into the mission and purpose of God. See, a pastor, one of these you know, paper pastors I'm talking about, they're, they're, they, can, they can be all right for an hour and a half or two on a Sunday. You guys are great Christians if I just look at the moments where you're being great Christians. But the real substance, the real reason that we need the, the power of the third person of the Trinity in our lives is because what God, when God wants us to be a witness, he wants us to be a witness not just with our words and our actions, but our very being, our entire nature, who we are by identity. The whole of us is to be a witness, not just Sunday morning, not just a few days out of the week. Your whole life is supposed to be a witness. Even the parts maybe you think where no one is looking, no, the whole of it is intended to be. That's why you need God himself to dwell in you, or else you're not going to do it, or else you're not going to be more like him. And the word witness itself has an has a English transliteration. So the, the word translated witness there in, in the book of Acts, and often throughout, it's probably every translation, uh, or every time you see the English word witness in the English Bible, um, it actually has behind it a Greek word. Now, the entire New Testament is written in Greek. Um, but the Greek word behind the translated word witness in your Bible is a Greek word, martus. You can spell it M-A-R-T-U-S if you wanted to. But we get the actually the English word martyr from this Greek word. 
Now, it's a little intimidating. It's because words change meaning over time that you don't just have, I, uh, you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem. Because what do we think of when we think of martyrs? Yeah, dead people. People who die for what they believe in. But see, the idea is actually that. A martyr is someone who testifies to a truth to the point of death or causing their death. That what they testified to was something that would lead to their death or that they were willing to testify to this thing with saying, this is so true, I'm willing to die for it. That is the idea behind this word witness. At least that is the, the idea that Christians have kind of you know, evolved this word to mean, is when we talk about being a witness for the Lord, I'm not just talking about one time you come up and you share a story about what God has done for you. When God, God calls us to be witnesses, he's saying your whole life up until the point of death is to be a testimony to Jesus. We also need, and this is the last point, we also need the Holy Spirit for this mission because only the Holy Spirit can bring the kind of unity and community that will be a witness to the world. In John chapter 17, so if you notice, John 14 15, 16, 17. In each chapter, Jesus is speaking about uh, what is to come, about the Holy Spirit, about the mission and purpose after he leaves. In John 17, he prays. He prays this prayer. John chapter 17, verse 20 through 21. He prays for you and for me here. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Meaning, when these disciples become my witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit, other people are going to believe in me. Other people are going to become disciples. So what does he pray then for all those who will also become believers because of their faithful witness? In other words, us. What does he pray? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I knew that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What is one way that we are a witness and accomplish this gospel mission for which Jesus ascended is in our unity, in our community. The idea is that when the world sees this kind of community built upon the work of the Holy Spirit, people should say, well, there must be a God. I, and we're, we, we worry and we want to give all these kind of, and I'm not saying there are not intellectually sound, philosophically good, apologetics answers to a lot of the questions of skeptics and atheists. There are out there. They are, there's one of the worst places on the internet is uh, like atheist forums because so much of them are full of the same tired arguments and same uh, kinds of emotional, you know, junk. Where okay, guy, I get it. You guys, you guys are, are hurt inside. Someone, someone did something that messed you up towards religion. You know, there's a pastor or a parent who said they're Christian. They did something really bad. I get it. But most of those kinds of um, intellectual arguments and philosophical arguments, which we do need to give a response for, according to First Peter uh, three fifteen, um, are perhaps not as persuasive as a Holy Spirit-empowered witness 
and unity. So for us to genuinely act like Christians, because what are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's in Galatians 5.22. If we're genuinely acting like the Holy Spirit is in us and we're exuding those fruits and we're expressing them here in churches and we are united as believers, what does Jesus promise? Or what is Jesus saying will happen? The world might actually believe in me. I mean... Again, I don't think you should not become experts in defending your faith rigorously against the attacks of the devil and against intellectual attacks and philosophical attacks and all those things. But you can be a non-Christian and have a lot of good defenses for the Christian faith. I mean, I have heard non-Christians defend pretty rigorously the existence of God and even some of the things that the Bible says. But you know what a an atheist and a non-Christian should not be able to do, have this kind of unity. Because it requires the Holy Spirit to exude the fruits of the Spirit in this. Now, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I know non-Christians that exude those things. Well, what makes a difference is, again, for the Spirit, for you not to just Exude them when people are watching or when it's convenient, but for the whole of your life to be like that. Those are very few. And the only way you, you would know that someone really exudes those things is if, to be in community with them and to see them when they're not and to see them struggle through those things. It's easy to speak highly of, you know, I, I had a very high respect for my crossing guard, uh, Edith, back in elementary school. You know, she's a very sweet lady, cross you know, cross, uh, walked me across the street. My grandmother barely spoke English. They'd talk to each other. Sweet lady. Still remember her to this day. But what do I really know about her? Spent three minutes with her, you know, every day. But she could have been a raging alcoholic. I don't know. I get surprised about things I learn about very sweet people <laughs> that I seem to have met. See, but you, you don't know. So I, I think some of the point of the Holy Spirit drawing believers into a community and why I'm making a big deal about this is so that we can actually see and know if the Holy Spirit's really living in our lives, producing these fruit in such a way, such a consistent, clear, pure way that the world would see it and say, yep, there's a God. I cannot deny that. That's what Jesus says here. That's his goal. That's his purpose. And so even as we look ahead to think of taking communion together as a body, this should be a tremendous statement, not only of our unity with him, but with each other. And that is something to consider this morning. Are you a Christian? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you that produces this desire to be a witness? And in desiring to be a witness, a strong sense of community and, and oneness and unity with the people around you here, do you see that the reason for the ascension is for us to be about a mission and purpose of sharing the gospel so that people can be a part of this glorious, wonderful kingdom. And if those things are absent from you this morning, that you might have to consider, well, maybe you haven't put your faith truly and fully into Jesus Christ who died and rose again for forgiveness of sins. Come to him now and he'll forgive you. Come to him now and understand the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian 
this morning. It's just one of those reminders for me. Am I living by the power of the Spirit? Notice in Romans 8, 1 through 7, which you just read this morning, the contrast of the mind set to the flesh versus set on the things of the Spirit. Has your mind been set on the things of the Spirit lately or the things of the flesh? I know the answer for me. But you answer for yourself. If you have anything to confess, confess it in your heart to the Lord or confess it to someone else. But come to the table this morning with the conscience that is clear before God. God, you know my heart. You know I've stumbled and fallen in these ways. I know that through Christ there's forgiveness. I plead his blood. I plead his work, not my own. And then you can come to the table. And then afterwards, just as important, well, no, that's it's bad to say it that way, but very important, the fellowship. You know, we're going to have a time to actually see and talk to each other. We haven't seen each other in a week. Some of you, longer than that, let's express and show some unity and love for each other, the kind that only the Holy Spirit can do, the kind that the world looks in and sees and believes God. So the donut and coffee, what I was going to say, the donut and coffee time is also important. Not as important as this. That's where I was right there on that blasphemy line. So good thing, stop that. But coffee and donuts are important because it's a chance to live out the, the theology here of, of penal substitutionary atonement. Let's live it out, right? On the patios, in homes, in restaurants, in schools, in your workplace. Let's live it out by the power of the Spirit and be his witnesses. Heavenly Father, thank you. For your mercy and kindness, thank you for showing us that while it's incredible that Jesus, that God would even become a man and walk among among us, uh, even a more incredible thought perhaps is that God would dwell in sinners like us, changing us, conforming us to the image of the Son, making us more like him, giving us this wonderful gospel mission to declare to the whole world that there is a good God who has seen the broken sinner and sent his son um, to die for us so that we could be welcomed into the kingdom of God. So thank you, Lord, for these words, these reminders, um, and that as we celebrate not only the resurrection but the ascension of Christ, that we would look around and, and, uh, and <laughs> like those angels reminding them, why are you looking up? <laughs> oh, God, Jesus is coming back. Be about his mission. So help us, Lord, to be about your mission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.